you all for being here. Uh, let's get started. It's a fairly impressive turnout for a, a president who died nearly 90 years ago. Taft mania is alive and well in the 21st century. Uh, William Howard Taft is both the subject and the title of Jeffrey Rosen's terrific new book on our 27th president. In it, he makes the case that a chief executive now known mainly for his size should really be better appreciated for his substance. Uh, Taft served a single term from 1909 to 1913, a term that was characterized by respect for separation of powers, reluctance to rule by executive order, and uh, refusal to wage war without Congress. His motto might well have been, I alone can't fix it. <laughs> he, he, he lost his reelection bid in the pivotal 1912 race, finishing third behind two men with uh, starkly different visions of the presidency. Uh, his one-time ally, Theodore Roosevelt, and the winner, Woodrow Wilson. And that was tragic for the country, perhaps, but less tragic for Taft, since like most well-adjusted people, uh, he never really wanted the job of president. In 1921, he got the post he'd always aspired to, Chief Justice of the United States, and served until his death in 1930. Now, Jeff's book is part of the American President series inaugurated by uh, the historian Arthur Schlesinger, Jr. And I happen to be uh, pretty familiar with this series because uh, a couple of New Year's resolutions ago in a fit of masochistic self-improvement, I decided to read through all of them in chronological order at a pace of about uh, one a week. I didn't make it, I, uh, I ran aground in number 23, Benjamin Harrison. But, but Jeff's book has renewed my enthusiasm for this project. Uh, it is impressively argued, but it, it is also packed with the sorts of vivid details and lively anecdotes that make history so much fun to read. Uh, just quickly, a couple of examples that stuck out for me. Uh, first, like Gerald Ford, another president remembered for unintentional physical comedy, Taft was actually a, a fairly accomplished athlete. He, run a, he won a wrestling title at Yale, heavyweight division, naturally. <laughs> he also had a terrible temper uh, that he, he struggled to control sometimes. As a young man, after an Ohio newspaper man uh, criticized his father, Judge Alfonso Taft, quote, Will confronted the editor on the street lifted him up and bashed his head repeatedly against the curb. Uh, Taft's uh, first presidential race in 1908 against William Jennings Bryan uh, actually involved the application of a new technology to, uh, to electoral politics. It was the first time that sound recordings played a, a central role. And as Jeff recounts, Taft and Bryan supporters often held record duels inviting other supporters to listen to the recordings of both candidates in church halls and other public meeting places. A newspaper in Spokane, Washington, described one of these battles of the phonograph. A Bryan supporter played Bryan's recording on the need to reduce the tariff, only to be interrupted by a Taft supporter playing the song, Merry Ha Ha. Uh, well, what, you might ask, can a presidency from the age of the gramophone have to teach us about the presidency 
in the age of social media and Twitter Tourette's? Quite a lot, actually. Uh, from Jeff's introduction, as he puts it, while I write, democracies around the world, including the United States, are engaged in a vigorous debate about whether populism, characterized by leaders who claim that they alone speak for the people, is consistent with constitutionalism, characterized by allegiance to representative government, checks and balances, individual rights, and the rule of law. New media technologies are enabling the rise of populist and nationalist political movements that threaten core constitutional values. Taft's legacy, therefore, is especially relevant today. As the only president to approach the office in constitutional terms above all, he provides a model for how presidents and justices can resist these pressures, which threaten judicial independence and the rule of law. And so who better to examine the legacy of this constitutionally conscientious president than the head of the National Constitution Center. Uh, since 2013, Jeff has been president and chief executive order officer of the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia, whose mission is to educate the public about the US Constitution. Uh, he is also a professor at the George Washington University Law School, contributing editor to The Atlantic. Uh, the Chicago Tribune named him one of the 10 best magazine journalists in America. And uh, Jeff Rosen is also the author of six books, including The Unwanted Gaze, The Destruction of Privacy in America, uh, Louis D. Brandeis, American Prophet, and now William Howard Taft. Um, and to help guide the discussion, we're also very pleased to have with us Judge Douglas Ginsburg of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. Uh, he, Judge Ginsburg was appointed to the D.C. Circuit by President Reagan in November 1986, served as chief judge from 2001 to 2008. He is a graduate of the University of Chicago Law School, where I believe they still sell a T-shirt uh, that says, "You Chicago Law School, hell does freeze over. Uh, <laughs> and uh, he is, uh, among other things, uh, now also a professor at the Antonin Scalia Law School in, at George Mason University. So let's hear first from Jeff, and then we will open the conversation. Thank you so much, Gene. Uh, thanks for inviting me back to Cato. It's always an honor to speak here at this Temple of Liberty. And thank you, Gene, also for uh, convening us so well and for distributing the world's first Taft mustache gift. He, he sent on Twitter this picture of Taft with a flashing neon mustache, and it, I know, brought you all here. Thanks to my good friend Judge Ginsburg for being a respondent. It is a great honor to have such a distinguished uh, judge and Taft scholar for this conversation, and Doug also helped me understand Taft as what Doug calls the second most important chief justice since John Marshall. That's the strong claim that Doug makes. And Doug also says, and I quote this in the introduction, that Taft was the most underappreciated constitutional figure since George Mason, who failed to sign the Bill of Rights, uh, the Constitution, because it had no Bill of Rights. So I'm going to talk about Taft's contribution as our most constitutional and judicial president. And then Doug will talk about his contribution as our most presidential chief justice. So what does it mean to say that Taft was our most judicial president? 
he approached every decision as president in constitutional terms. Unlike Theodore Roosevelt, who said the president could do anything the Constitution didn't explicitly forbid, Taft said that the, the president could do only what the Constitution explicitly allowed. In this sense, he was channeling James Madison and Alexander Hamilton, whom he'd studied as a student and revered as a judge. Taft believed, like the framers, that uh, America was not a direct democracy, but a representative republic. He said majorities should rule, but they should rule based on reason rather than passion. Taft, like the framers, thought the system was set up to slow down the formation of popular majorities so that hasty and impetuous mobs could be restrained from threatening liberty. And that's why, as president, he determined to put Theodore Roosevelt's activist executive orders on firm constitutional grounds by persuading Congress to enact them. Taft, caricatured as a stand pat conservative, was just as much of an energetic Hamiltonian as Theodore Roosevelt. He withdrew more land for environmental protection than Roosevelt. He brought more antitrust suits than Roosevelt. Uh, and yet, he did so through the constitutional mechanisms of working in conjunction with Congress rather than acting alone. And then he fights the election of 1912 as a constitutionalist defense against the unchecked populism of both Roosevelt and Wilson. Roosevelt and Wilson are insisting that the president is a steward of the people who directly channels their will. Taft, like Madison, insists that the president is a servant of the Constitution who derives his powers directly from that instrument. And Taft is especially appalled by new progressive initiatives and referenda and the judicial recall, which Taft thought posed such a threat to liberty that he vetoed the statehood admission uh, applications of New Mexico and Arizona on the grounds that their state constitution contained provisions for judicial recall. The Arizona voters removed the provisions, Taft allowed them to be admitted, and once admitted as states, the voters promptly reinstated them. The mob would not be <laughs> gainsaid. But this is just a remarkable and obviously extraordinarily relevant vision of what a constitutional presidency would look like. And it's fair to say that Taft was our last Madisonian president. Uh, George Will, uh, at the National Constitution Center said that all of American history can be seen as a battle between two Princetonians, James Madison, the constitutionalist, and Woodrow Wilson, the progressive imperialist. And as the first president to criticize the Madisonian separation of powers and checks and balances, Wilson ushered in an imperial presidency and parliamentary Congress that was the antithesis of the distributed power that Madison insisted on. Taft was the last president to champion in that vision, and that's why it's so important for all Americans in general and for libertarians in particular to embrace this great uh, constitutionalist as a model. So just a few details about Taft and his uh, presidency. I begin the book with the story of uh, Taft and his wife traveling to the Far East where the Empress of Japan offers Taft a beautiful Gobelin tapestry. Uh, Taft insists that he has to refuse the gift because the Foreign Emoluments Clause of the Constitution prohibits officials of the United States from accepting any gifts from foreign kings or potentates. The problem yeah. is that Mrs. Taft really wants the tapestry. <laughs> So she appeals to President Roosevelt to insist that she's not an official of the United States, even though Taft is, so she gets to keep 
the tapestry and it hangs in the White House bewildering visitors uh, ever, ever since. Uh, Nellie's verdict on this uh, expression of constitutional scruples was, uh, my husband stood by the Constitution as usual. And that's exactly what he did throughout his career. He imbibed his constitutional faith from his revered father, Alfonso Taft, who was also a judge on the Ohio courts, uh, secretary of war, and a distinguished diplomat to Russia. Alfonso Taft tells the young William Howard Taft, to be chief justice is more than to be president in my estimation. So Taft from his youth imbibes the ambition of serving on the Supreme Court. And yet fate conspires to throw him a, a series of uh, unwanted political offices. He uh, serves on the Ohio and then the federal courts on the Sixth Circuit, which he finds a kind of heaven, uh, but then uh, resigns his post to serve as Solicitor General of the United States, where he institutes the noble practice of confessing error when the government thinks that it shouldn't have won its case. Uh, and then goes on to be governor of the Philippines, where he thrives as a kind of Solon, a constitution maker, bringing the gifts of uh, constitutional structures and also education to a grateful people. Roosevelt wants to appoint him to the Supreme Court. He turns it down with the greatest reluctance because he thinks that duty requires him to stay in the Philippines. And then Roosevelt makes him secretary of war, where he has remarkable success building the Panama Canal, working out peace with Cuba, and establishing himself as the finest administrator that Henry Stimson, the Secretary of War under Taft, Roosevelt and Hoover, and also uh, Secretary of State under uh, Harry Truman, uh, Stimson said that of all those great presidents, Taft was the finest administrator of them all. And that's an underrated skill, but it made Taft an incredibly effective Governor General of the Philippines and also an extraordinarily effective Chief Justice. Then essentially his wife and Theodore Roosevelt make him run for president. And he doesn't want to and he has no a uh, gift for the arts of popularity. I will not play a part for popularity, he tells his uh, aide, Archie Butt, who served with both Roosevelt and Taft. Uh, but uh, running against William Howard, uh, William Jennings Bryan, he wins the election of 1908 handily on the platform of reducing the tariff. This was the great hot button issue of 1908. Uh, and in fact, uh, the tariff had last been reduced in uh, 1894 under the Democrats, leading uh, Grover Cleveland to lose the election. And the Republicans are split between Stan Pat Republicans who, uh, in, the, in the North, who like the tariffs which favored Northeastern manufacturing interests and harm Western farmers. And then there are the progressive insurgents like Robert LaFollette who want to lower the tariff and are free traders, although not as much as the Democrats. Uh, and Taft is caught in the middle. So he, but he's a constitutionalist. He reads the Republican platform, which pledges the party to uh, revise the tariffs. And he says in his inaugural address, as I promised in the platform, I'm going to convene both houses of Congress to ask them to revise the tariff. Weeks later, he uh, sends a message to Congress on the tariff. Both houses are assembled waiting for what they think will be a state paper of great importance. And the clerk brings a message and they're waiting breathlessly and the clerk reads, as I said in my inaugural address, please revise the tariff. And they're stunned. You know, they thought that he was going to make a, a, a powerful case. But he thinks that the Constitution forbids the president from lobbying for legislation, but just allows him to make suggestions. He says, I offer this as a suggestion only. And like a judicial opinion, he thought a 340-word message would do. So then he sits back, and politics take their toll. And it's just a bloodbath. And in the end, the bill that emerges lowers the tariffs a little bit, but not uh, 
enough to satisfy either the free traders, but too much to satisfy the Stan Pat people. Taft then uh, has a vice, he's compulsively honest. I worked at the New Republic magazine, the old New Republic here in DC for many years, and, and Michael Kinsley uh, said uh, decades ago that in Washington, a gaffe is when a politician tells the truth. So that's what Taft did all the time. And he went out on the campaign trail and he said, this is the best tariff bill the Republican Party ever passed. In fact, it was, but this went viral on the wireless and infuriated people because you know, <laughs> neither side was happy and he suffers a black eye. But it's remarkable that unlike Theodore Roosevelt, who for all his talk never actually had the guts to introduce tariff reform, Taft did, and the tariffs were modestly lowered, setting the US toward a path of free trade that Wilson would continue, and with an unfortunate uh, hiatus during the Smoot-Hawley era, established a kind of bipartisan consensus that prevailed more or less until 2016. So that's Taft on the tariffs. Then he, he does similar things on the environment. Uh, without any political savvy whatsoever, he insists on persuading Congress to introduce bills that will withdraw land for environmental protection. He precipitates the greatest scandal of his presidency by firing an aide whom he considers disloyal. As Gene said, his temper was his uh, Achilles heel, and it was mostly because of his devotion to loyalty. He took any signs of disloyalty as an affront, and when a former aide to Roosevelt accused one of his interior secretary of basically giving away lands to a, a syndicate owned by the Guggenheims, Taft, who looked into the matter and thought there was no wrongdoing, is furious. He fires the whistleblower, then fires uh, Roosevelt's main environmental aide, and then he makes the great mistake during a congressional investigation led by my other hero, Louis Brandeis. Uh, Taft makes the mistake of backdating a document that he had relied on to justify his opinion, and Brandeis uncovers this, and it looks like Taft is guilty of great malfeasance. In DC always, it's not the crime, but the cover-up. So the Pinscher-Ballinger affair was the, uh, the scandal of Taft's presidency, but in fact, Congress concluded he didn't do anything substantively wrong. He was a free trader, and he persuades Congress to enact the first Canadian free trade agreement, the precursor of NAFTA, but unfortunately, he is impolitic about the Canadians and writes a letter to Roosevelt saying, if Canada passes this bill, Canada will be an annex of the United States. This goes viral in Canada. He's, direct, he's <laughs> denounced as tricky Taft, and the Canadian voters reject it. Mild compared to recent Canadian tweets, but it's another sign of his, his Kinsley uh, sort of honesty. Uh, and, and then um, uh, he uh, ends up having a breach with Theodore Roosevelt and fighting the election of 1912 on the issue of populism. And it's such a moving story. Taft was a very tender-hearted man. He was devoted to his wife. When she had a stroke, he would nurse her back to health and teach her how to speak lovingly and was just a model of, uh, of, of devotion. Uh, so when Roosevelt took offense at the Pincher-Ballinger affair, uh, Taft is just racked. Roosevelt was my closest friend, he said, and then he wept. But he's so appalled by Roosevelt's behaving like a demagogue that he decides to run for president just to defend the Constitution. He calls Roosevelt a, a, a populist demagogue and is especially appalled by Roosevelt's embrace of the idea of judicial recall. Roosevelt is going around attacking individual judges by name. 
again, the resonances are obvious, and uh, Taft <laughs> thinks that the independence of the judiciary is the most important issue facing America, as well as the need to reform civil and criminal procedure, which he says is the most urgent issue facing America. Imagine a president uh, saying that today. So he fights this doomed but noble campaign in 1912. Uh, George Will once again says that uh, the best test of a conservative is who you voted for in the campaign of 1912. And Will makes the case that a true conservative uh, or libertarian would vote for Taft rather than the populist uh, uh, Roosevelt uh, Wilson, both of whom were progressives. And he goes down to one of the greatest defeats of a sitting president winning only two states. Uh, he's uh, upset, but goes back to Yale to teach law, and then finally achieves his ambition to be Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. He set it up really nicely. When it came time for Taft to appoint a Chief Justice during his presidency, the obvious candidate is Charles Evans Hughes, who's this former governor of New York, a dynamo, who eventually becomes chief after Taft. But as Hughes is dressing for the appointment on the way to the White House, Taft telephones him and cancels the appointment, and then appoints Edward Douglas White, a 65-year-old Southern Democrat whose only qualification for the job is the Taft's hope that he'll expire in time for Taft to replace him. So uh, unfortunately, for a decade, Douglas uh, White refuses to expire. He, he lives, uh, and Taft keeps checking in on him. You know, how are you feeling? Do you, do you want, some, <laughs> want some more cake? And uh, no, no sign of uh, any retirement plans. Happily for Taft, uh, White expires without warning in 1921 and Harding uh, appoints him to be the uh, 10th Chief Justice of the United States, where he distinguishes himself uh, as the greatest, uh, second greatest chief since Marshall. I'm gonna leave it to Judge Ginsburg to give us a sense of his legacy, and I'm so eager to learn more from Doug about why uh, uh, he reveres Taft so much. I'll just note the three obvious great, greatest achievements he built the Supreme Court building. The Temple of Justice built by Cass Gilbert would not have existed without Taft's vision. He lobbied and got the money for it and built it. Second, he passed the Judiciary Act of, 18, of 1922, which created the uh, Judicial uh, Conference, which uh, created the modern administrative apparatus of the federal judiciary and allowed the judiciary to be a fully modern and equal, uh, co-equal branch of government. And then the Judiciary Act of 25, which gave the Supreme Court control over its own docket, reduced its need to hear trivial cases and focused it on constitutional cases. And Taft also created more unanimity than any chief since John Marshall. Doug will fill in the details. I'll just end by noting that uh, the Taft weight jokes are uh, unfair. Uh, first of all, they'd be considered weightist uh, today. Even in, his, <laughs> even in his day, Taft was uh, a pop cultural meme. People were obsessed with seeing him bathing, and the idea of Taft in baths was constantly in the newspapers. The citizens of Glenwood uh, Springs, North Carolina, met him at a train station with a specially constructed bathing costume that they wanted him to put on so they could watch him <laughs> bathe. But in fact, for most of his life, he was pretty buff. Uh, after he was president, he went on a paleo diet and lost 76 pounds in six months by eating fruits and vegetables and gluten-free biscuits. And for, uh, he lost the sleep apnea, which he'd had while president, which made him fall asleep in public because he couldn't get a decent night's sleep. And while he was chief, he, you can see pictures of him, and he's uh, uh, fit, and he would walk across every day from his house on Wyoming Avenue, which is now the Syrian embassy. He'd walk across what's now fittingly Taft Bridge, you know, the one that crosses uh, Rock Creek uh, from uh, Calorama to Woodley Park, and then walk to the court. 
and uh, just thrived uh, as a presidential chief justice, although he chafed as a judicial president. So that's the case for our greatest constitutional president, uh, William Howard Taft. And now over to Judge Ginsburg to hear about his legacy as chief justice. Hey, Jeff, thank you. Well, I won't, I won't try to do that standing up. Uh, but something you just said um, <clears throat> reminded me of a uh, story I might share briefly, which was that uh, it concerned uh, Taft checking periodically on uh, Justice White's health. Um, Justice Marshall, uh, Thurgood Marshall, not John, for whom I clerked, I know I look old, but not that old, <laughs> um, um, was in Bethesda for a medical problem. And um, he, he had been asleep, and when he woke up, the nurse said that President Nixon had called, and they didn't want to wake him, so uh, they didn't. And um, he said, well, if the president calls back and I'm asleep, give him a message, just two words. Not yet. <laughs> so maybe Justice White knew what was going on too. <laughs> um, well, uh, this really comes out thoroughly in Jeff's book. Um, and I'll only embellish or extend it a little bit. But um, Taft really um, thrived and, uh, and strove, had always striven to be a judge and a good judge. And he was a judge in the Ohio um, lower courts at a very young age, I think 29, uh, and then on the Sixth Circuit and um, before becoming Solicitor General. On the Sixth Circuit, he uh, wrote uh, what was a very important uh, antitrust decision. And uh, as president, he took a keen interest in, uh, in antitrust uh, enforcement and particularly uh, trying to, uh, to uh, encourage an understanding of the Sherman Act that was quite different than what, uh, what Roosevelt had been pursuing. Anyway, um, as Jeff said, he very reluctantly, I think you said, I know you wrote, reluctantly left the judiciary and then the solicitor generalship to take on these other tasks as not only governor of the Philippines, but secretary of war, and, um, and showed an administrative brilliance that I think we've seen only among people of that stature from Herbert Hoover, I think the only other example. Um, and neither, neither, neither of them were very successful presidents despite that administrative ability, although they did wonderful things before and after. So um, Jeff enumerated these things, and I'll elaborate only a little bit about Taft's accomplishments as, as Chief Justice. And in some, I think it's fair to say that the federal judiciary that we have today is uh, Taft's judiciary, with very little resemblance to the judiciary that preceded it. Um, the, one of the most important achievements and one of his highest priorities was getting rid of the uh, appellate or mandatory jurisdiction of the court, or it didn't get rid of it, but managed to eliminate the great majority of it so that whereas any federal, any case involving uh, federal uh, uh, statute or constitution was appealable to the Supreme Court, uh, almost all of that became discretionary. The court can decide whether to grant a writ of certiorari and accept a case. And the court had been overwhelmed with the volume of cases under the old scheme. And frankly, Taft was quite correct that most of them were really not very important. 
Uh, a lot of them did not get published opinions, but they took up the time of the court and um, deflected it from, from what he regarded as more important business, and I think that's a fair assessment. But it's important to realize that any court, particularly any Supreme Court, that has discretionary jurisdiction inevitably becomes a policymaking body in a way that would not otherwise be possible. So to take a dramatic example within living memory, Chief Justice Warren wanted to constitutionalize criminal procedure. And by being able to select cases and devote the court's time to cases in furtherance of that goal, he managed to accomplish a great deal of it. Justice Brennan, and I frankly can't remember whether this is something I, that he said in my presence when I was clerking for Justice Marshall or, or in some public place, but he, uh, he always read his own, all the cert petitions. He, he didn't have clerks even looking at the cert petitions. And so every week or two, there'd be a big library cart with hundreds of these things. And, uh, and he would go through them all. And he was asked, isn't that terribly time consuming? And he said, not if you know what you're looking for. Hmm. Now that's the downside of the discretionary jurisdiction, hmm. but it is, it is the central character of the current judicial, Supreme Court. Second, um, Taft was intent on having uh, the Supreme Court and therefore the judiciary's stature elevated in the eyes of the public and I think of the other two branches, particularly the Congress. And it, it, until, the, until the current building of the Supreme Court, current courthouse was built, was completed in 1935, 38, 38 I think, um, there, this, this, the Supreme Court met in the old Senate chamber in the, low, the ground level of the, of the Capitol. And it was a rather uh, unprepossessing and undignified place, not only a place not of their own, but one that had no real uh, stature. And um, he managed to, although the, the court was not entirely persuaded of this, he managed to get, got a majority to back him and, and he got the Congress to appropriate uh, almost $10 million for the construction of that building. He oversaw the planning uh, but he did not live to see the, uh, the completion of the building. Died in 1931, and uh, the building opened, I think, in 35. Uh, a beautiful building, and one that uh, does radiate stature for the Supreme Court. The L'Enfant pl uh, Plan for Washington had set aside a place of, of dignity for the Supreme Court. It's what is now called Judiciary Square, where the courts of the District of Columbia sit right behind where the federal courthouse is and slightly up, up a hill. Um, and the idea in the L'Enfant plan had been that the court would sit in an elevated position overlooking but not in the line of fire between the two <laughs> political branches up and down Pennsylvania Avenue. No building was ever built and eventually the uh, federal government ceded the land to the district for its complex of three or four court buildings. So that's why the Supreme Court is now behind the Capitol and, uh, and not where, where it was originally intended to be. Third, um, Taft uh, laid the groundwork for 
the, um, what became the Rules Enabling Act of 1934 and the issuance of the first edition of the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure in 1938. And um, prior to that time, the rules were um, highly decentralized among the different circuits. There remains a significant degree of variety among the circuits in their local rules, but they're overridden by any uh, national or uniform rules. And um, that, had, uh, that tendency of centralization and uniformity may have overrun its proper bounds by, in recent years, uh, but it does so to reflect the fact, I think, that we have many national law firms and uh, the, the, the circuit boundaries don't, don't represent a great deal of, of um, distinction among locations anymore, so that having more uniform rules sort of removed a, just a trap for the unwary, for lawyers who are appearing outside of their, their home circuit. But the, the rules uh, were, uh, the, the legislation uh, authorizing the rules was Taft's conception, uh, a seed he planted with the Congress, even though it came to fruition shortly after he died and is still with us. And then um, finally, um, the Judicial Conference of the United States. This is the governing body of the federal judiciary. As originally conceived, I think it included the Chief Justice and the, uh, what would now be 13, I think it was then perhaps 11, um, Chief Circuit Judges. Today, it's the, the 13 Chief Circuit Judges, of course the Chief Justice, and one Chief District Judge from within each of the circuits. Uh, now, for instance, in Washington, there's only one district uh, the district for the District of Columbia, so the chief judge of that court is always a member. Uh, in, say, the Ninth Circuit, uh, there are probably, I don't know, 70, 80, maybe more than that, must be more than that. 30% of all of the federal cases come from the Ninth Circuit. So um, that would mean perhaps 250 district judges, one of whom is a member of the Judicial Conference at any given time, along with the chief of the Ninth Circuit. And this governing body um, really uh, has an enormous influence in the uh, resolving issues that arise within the administration of the federal system. Uh, it's, a, it's a task of some significance. There are, um, I think, about 18,000 employees uh, in the system, and sometimes it, it, it runs up in several thousand more, as it did during the Great Recession to deal with bankruptcy matters. Um, but there are only fewer than 800 active uh, judges. So um, the, uh, the administration is an important thing and the judges are not typically involved on a day-to-day -day basis in administration. There are staff that does it. Having this conference is extremely important in setting policy. So that is the judiciary that we have today. And as I say, it bears little resemblance to the one that preceded it. Um, and I think that's often, uh, well, it's almost universally overlooked. Who would know that unless you're starting to think about Taft's role in all of this? So I think Jeff's done a, uh, a great service, uh, among others in this book, in, um, in bringing back to the fore Taft's role as Chief Justice. So thank you. Thank you. <laughs> uh, Jeff, I wonder if you could say a little bit about, uh, as you do in the book, the. Uh, 
you know, Taft shows uh, the promise of a constitutional presidency, maybe in an era when uh, it's much needed, but he also shows the difficulties of establishing that. The, uh, you know, I will not play a part for popularity. The, uh, the idea of a president who won't tell you I alone can fix it uh, turned out not to be particularly popular over a century ago. Um, and, you know, what, how do you think uh, his experience at president, as president uh, being trounced by two people with a very different uh, theory of the presidency, uh, what it says about the difficulties of establishing a more modest, limited chief magistrate today? Yes, it's obviously extraordinarily difficult. So I can say with complete nonpartisan uh, confidence that the idea of tweeting presidents would have appalled Madison and Taft. Madison says in Federalist 10 that direct communication between the people and the representatives is the evil most to be avoided as conducive to forming factions, that is, mobs animated by passion rather than reason. And Madison rejects the idea of direct instruction by the people of their representatives or presidents. And of course, Obama was the first tweeting president uh, in any event. So Taft, in his refusal to play a part for popularity, the fact that he would, these gramophone speeches, which you can get on YouTube, by the way, if you're really geeks, uh, <laughs> are incredibly legalistic. He's basically reading judicial opinions. The, pre the people and the tariffs, the tariffs and the presidency. You know, and, and people listened to this and they were thrilled because it was a new technology. But uh, we lack today the attention span to listen to long, intricate speeches about the tariffs with figures and arguments. So it was hard even in his day, and then you had the combination of a new vision of the presidency by Wilson and Roosevelt, and then new technologies which increased the demand of the people for direct communication with their uh, presidents. And then the celebrification of the presidency too, the fact that we relate to our presidents and representatives in terms of personality rather than uh, substance makes the Taftian and uh, Madisonian vision even more elusive. But what to do about it? We do need to come up with a way of resurrecting the cooling mechanisms that have been atrophied by technology or else Madison's and Taft's fear of demagogues and mobs will come to pass. Madison says in Federalist 55, in all large assemblies of any character composed, passion never fails to wrest the scepter to reason uh, even if every Athenian had been Socrates, Athens would still have been a mob. So the framers are centrally concerned with this problem of direct democracy leading to demagogues who mislead the people with their silver tongue promises. And Taft, he's so Madisonian. He, he wrote a wonderful book called Popular Government, where he says the framers did not intend us to be a direct democracy, nor are we. They wanted majorities to rule, but only reasonably rather than through passion. It's the most direct channeling of Madisonian thought I, I've ever seen any scholar, let alone a president, do until Greg Weiner's excellent book, Madison's Metronome. If you are real uh, wonks and you want to channel this Madisonian vision, then read Greg Weiner on this on this question. So, so what to do? I, I, I mean, I suppose our most, you know, Obama was a pretty judicial president, despite his rule by executive orders. And I, I, I know Cato was not a fan of much of what he did, but but he had a judge's temperament and uh, suffered for it, and it's even tougher now. I think the uh, solution that Taft reminds us of, even if you can't 
uh, put the genie back in the bottle, is ways of slowing down deliberation so the president can't rule by fiat. So the court striking down executive orders is uh, something that progressives as well as libertarians are now embracing. Congress doing its job in checking the imperial presidency and asserting its constitutional prerogatives. We now, we, of course, Congress could tomorrow, if it wanted to, withdraw the president's power to pass tariffs under the fake justification of national security and just take responsibility for exercising their tariff role. Uh, and then thinking about ways of how to slow down deliberation on social media now that things are governed by Twitter polls and Brexit votes and 24-7 warp speed deliberation. So all this is to say, and, and the book acknowledges, I mean, Taft was not a greatly successful president. Most polls put him right in the middle, around 24 out of uh, uh, you know, all, all the presidents. So um, I think we need institutional and constitutional and technological solutions to resurrect the Taftian Madisonian presidency, uh, and that's the only solution. And the last thing I'll say is there's one Madisonian and Taftian mechanism that's still working really well today, and that's federalism. It turns out that dividing power between the national government and the states and making it hard to pass laws at the national level and allowing medical marijuana and sanctuary cities to thrive in the blue states and the Second Amendment to thrive in the red states is just what the framers had in mind. So there's a good example of how even in the age of populist uh, social media, uh, some of the Madisonian and Taftian vision can prevail. Jeff, I, I want to just um, question for a moment your statement about President Obama. You said he was also a judicial president, was that it? He had a judi judicial sensibility in the sense that he deliberated and was a law professor and didn't, didn't you know, shun lobbying Congress and had a horror of glad handling and all that. Well, yes, that's just our personal conservatism style. Um, but um, his attitude towards judges and the law was quite different. Uh, and during the campaign, his first campaign to presidency, uh, when asked what his priorities were in appointing judges, he said empathy, not fidelity to the founder's constitution, which is the current administration's um, approach. I won't uh, defend the empathy standard, and I will express distress that Obama didn't care more about judges. He's privately apologized for not caring more about the judiciary, and it was a great shortcoming that our, uh, you know, he was an excellent constitutional law professor, and his, the answers to his Chicago law exams were online, and they were better than mine. I mean, he was really, he was a fine teacher, but he didn't believe that the courts were crucial, uh, and as a result, uh, he, he suffered. Constitutional law professors, Taft possibly accepted, tend to make pretty lousy presidents <laughs> if you look at the, uh, <laughs> Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, Woodrow Wilson, if you count him. Uh, I, on the, uh, the issue of uh, the difficulty of uh, chief magistrate in the 21st century, it occurred to me when, uh, in your remarks, and in the book you mentioned uh, the presidential rankings, Taft shows up uh, dead in the middle. Uh, his, uh, his predecessor and successor, who, as we've discussed today, uh, had significant flaws, are far ahead of him. I think that's even the case, at least for TR, when uh, the, like the APSA poll looks at self-professed conservatives. Uh, so I wonder if that, that says that it's not just it's not simply the uh, 
ordinary voter or the, the Twitter mob that has a problem with uh, a more restrained view of the, the presidency. I mean, if you look at the presidential rankings, uh, it is uh, people who caused a lot of trouble, uh, broke things and, uh, and promised new deals, new frontiers, uh, uh, tend to do a lot better than uh, people following more of a Hippocratic oath. I mean, the thing that always jumps out for me is poor William Henry Harrison, who didn't have any time to do anything good or bad, is nearly always, in this one, he's 42 out of 44. Well, I, again, no, no question about Taft's uh, average performance as presidency. I do quote the historian Perry Arnold has said if he hadn't been sandwiched between uh, Roosevelt and Wilson, uh, he would have been viewed as a successful president because he passed more antitrust suits and withdraw more land for environmental protection was you know, fairly active, but he suffered by comparison. But the other thing that a success, and, and Sean Wilentz, who's the succeeded Arthur Schlesinger as the editor of this great series, gave me some strong pushback and said, you're being too nice to Taft, and a president <laughs> to be successful has to have some popular uh, program and uh, charisma and leadership skills. But Wilentz's great contribution, Sean taught me this in his great book about uh, uh, American democracy and political parties, is that for much of American history, political parties were substitutes for the cooling mechanisms that the framers embraced by bringing together different coalitions, uh, geographic and ideological, and also being based on constitutional principles. Uh, the Republican Party was founded by Alfonso Taft in 1857, who drafted the Republican platform. It turns out in Philadelphia, just last week I was walking down Spruce Street and saw the plaque outside the hall where the 57 Republican convention was drafted, and it was drafted to preserve the union and to denounce the Missouri Compromise and to insist on uh, states' rights. That was the um, 57 Republican platform. And uh, then the um, uh, party system was founded on the Hamiltonian support of strong national power and uh, national regulation of the economy versus Jeffersonian states' rights and individual liberty. And as long as the parties were essentially constitutional, then you could have presidents who were running on constitutional platforms and all of the great advances for uh, liberty in America took the form of uh, movements coalescing around parties. Once the parties really got under siege, and this is a, a long process, but a consequence of post-Watergate reforms, like the direct primary, which Taft announced, he was so prescient here, and it wasn't until 1970 that a majority of presidential uh, primaries uh, were done by popular election in the states, and other, uh, financial reforms that weaken the parties, then it's much easier to get demagogues and populists who have no allegiance to a particular constitutional vision, but just to themselves. So, you know, I alone can fix it. It's just not a, it's not a constitutional vision. It's, it's trust me, which is not the founder's vision. So this is a long way of saying that I could imagine a less, uh, you, you, need, you need some, you need a lot of charisma to be president, but if you had a charismatic president who were also wedded to a coherent constitutional platform embodied in a political party, then you'd avoid some of the dangers of demagogues. And I can think of people on either side of the political spectrum today in the Senate, uh, Ben Sass and Chris Coons, uh, or Mike Lee and Chris Coons are both visiting scholars at the National Constitution Center and head of our Madisonian Constitution for All project. 
uh, either. B both of them have strong constitutional visions. They also, they also have some charisma, and I could imagine either of them you know, combining the Madisonian and popular virtues in successful ways. On the rankings, I think you have to wonder who's making these rankings when Wilson comes out <laughs> as being even, a, even a, well, I mean, he should be at the bottom of the barrel, really. Yeah. Right? I mean, a disaster with utter contempt for the Constitution. I wrote a book about why it's so terrible. Yeah, <laughs> I think what I'm getting at is the, the vision uh, of uh, the presidency that, that, that uh, Taft articulated of a comparatively limited and modest chief magistrate it's not just something that the ordinary voter uh, frequently rejects. Uh, the intellectual uh, elites, who, the, 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 the sorts of people who fill out, the political scientists and historians who fill out, and you know, it sounds like Sean Wilentz, this is uh, you know, relative adherence to the oath of office, uh, peace and prosperity, that'll get you a D grade in this ranking. Um, and, uh, you know, taking America into a war that it uh, didn't have to fight in Wilson's case and uh, uh, running a vicious crackdown on civil liberties, resegregating the, the, the federal government, on and on, that keeps you right up uh, in the top ten. So uh, I guess what I, what I was getting at is uh, isn't it uh, one problem is that uh, historians... Uh, thought leaders, use the odious term, uh, are opposed to this vision of the presidency. They think it's dull, unambitious. Well, pr pr progressives are rediscovering the virtues of limitations on the imperial presidency uh, in the past <laughs> year or so. So there may be... Arthur Schlesinger did that through his life, depending on who was president. <laughs> uh, well, I can... Why don't we open it up for audience questions? Uh, let me uh, say we'll, we'll try to make try to make these questions things that that add end in a question mark. Um, uh, I will I'll I will call on you. Uh, please please wait until the microphone uh, arrives. Uh, announce your name and affiliation if you think it's important. And again, please uh, make them questions. Uh, yes, sir, in the middle there. <laughs> My name is Stephen Shore, wonderful talk, but there's one phenomenon in the last generation or so that I'm, um, I'd like some comment on. That is you have justices on the left and right uh, doing book talks, books about their judicial philosophy, uh, essentially marketing their constitutional views. And at the risk of asking anyone to play the Witch of Endor and conjuring up the dead, what would you think, how would Taft have reacted to the politicization of the judiciary, or is the uh, what some consider the imperial Supreme Court a tragic consequence of dealing with an imperial presidency? It's a great question, and you know, the, uh, you allude first to the celebrification of the court, and uh, of course Taft would have uh, opposed it, and. Uh, Max Weber said that uh, authority requires a degree of mystery. And the whole point of the Temple of Justice with its velvet curtains and the glorious pediments is to create a kind of Wizard of Oz atmosphere where justice is, uh, 
uh, anonymous. And Chief Justice Roberts talked in his hearings about the black robes of uh, men meaning to conceal personality. And once you have judges feeling the same pressures to market themselves, to connect, to express empathy, to uh, talk about their dogs and their adorable personal quirks as every other overexposed celebrity in America, they run the same risks of uh, losing authority and relating to constituencies in personal terms. So it is a very delicate, the, the court's legitimacy is a delicate balancing act. It requires a degree of uh, mystery and, and uh, showbiz, as Weber said, the theatrical arts. And these pressures are huge, okay. both to market books okay. and also because the people want to know about the judges. Um, when I, I started writing about the court in a long, long time ago for the New Republic, in 91, the judges didn't give interviews now. Now they go on TV. So I think that you, it's a cautionary tale not to expose too much or else the mystery disappears. Jeff, uh, uh, what about a distinction between the books that reflect celebrity, like by autobiographies, and the books that deal with um, scholarly legal issues. I mean, Steve Breyer and Nino Scalia wrote books that were reasonably accessible, were wonderful for law students. Um, Scalia gave the Tanner Lectures at Princeton. They're published as a small volume with responses from Larry Tribe and Marianne Glendon and Gordon Wood and Ronald Tork, and it's a wonderful 150-page teaching material. Um, and uh, Steve's book, Act of Liberty, uh, equally uh, good. That seems to me to be, be engaging in a scholarly debate that is in, in, educational for the public and invites feedback for the justices. No question about it. They're wonderful uh, platforms of public education, very much in the tradition of Taft's own books from popular liberty to our chief magistrate and his powers, which is just an exemplary exercise in public education. Uh, so that's different than going on talk shows and, and writing biographies, but yeah. absolutely, the more public education about the Constitution, the better. Yes, sir. Does that work? Yes. Okay, hi. Chris Holloman from Small Business Administration. Could you talk about Taft's role in shaping the court uh, as I understand it, he played a real role in influencing who the appointees would be, and 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 how the court and the court's philosophy, uh, and and, and uh, being a very influential with the Republican presidents and who they would nominate. Well, I'll, I'll say a word and then and then, and then Doug. He, he he appointed, gosh, four or five justices. Uh, as president. As president. I think the question went to yeah. his role as chief justice. As though. as chief. Uh, you'll, I, I'm not sure about his advising uh, presidents, but he had a very clear role within the court about the need for unanimity. His model was Marshall, and he insisted on massing the court, as he put it, and he did it by suppressing dissents. He said, I don't believe in dissents, uh, and I'm willing to adjust my own views accordingly. As a result, he filed very few dissents in constitutional cases and persuaded even Brandeis and Holmes to come around and join decisions that they might have disagreed with. Brand there was a, a child labor case that Brandeis had originally been on the other side of, but when it was reheard, he joined Taft because the justices trusted Taft and his insistence on collegiality and unanimity. As a result, during the beginning of Taft's tenure, the unanimity rate was at a higher point than at any uh, time 
uh, I think since Marshall, but after the Judiciary Act gave the court control over its own jurisdiction in the second half of Taft's chief justiceship, unanimity fell because the court was taking more controversial cases about which there was more constitutional disagreement. So he was a masterful leader and master of the court, but as his role in influencing presidents on appointments. Do you know about that, Doug? I don't, but I will say that I think if the chief justice is asked by the president whether so-and-so would make a good colleague uh, or do you th want to suggest somebody who would make a good colleague, I think that's perfectly sensible, uh, as opposed to, for instance, Justice Fortas advising president on, on war tactics or politics or what have you. Seems to me a perfectly legitimate uh, function. In the back there, red shirt. Jeff, you've now written a book about uh, Louis Brandeis and a book about William Howard Taft. Can you talk about their relationship, particularly from 1913 to 1921 when Taft was between his presidency and his service on the Supreme Court and Justice Brandeis's appointment was being considered and talked about? Yes, thanks for asking about that. Uh, Taft did not behave well during the Brandeis confirmation. And it's basically because he wanted the seat. Uh, he had this fantasy that Wilson would appoint him, him, Taft, to the Supreme Court. That's how much he wanted it. And the idea that you know Wilson was going to appoint a, his, his rival was 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 a fantasy. So Brandeis is appointed, and uh, in in uh, 1916, and 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 Taft attacks him as an emotionalist, a moralist, unscrupulous. The the adjectives aren't quite anti-Semitic, but they verge on them. Taft himself was no anti-Semite, and he gave a noble speech, I think actually at, uh, it may have been at Addis Israel, who was the first president to give a speech at a synagogue denouncing anti-Semitism and saying it had no place in America, but he kind of just brought out the guns to attack Brandeis and was essentially channeling the opposition of J.P. Morgan and the corporate uh, interests that Brandeis had infuriated as the people's lawyer. Uh, Brandeis didn't respond to these uh, attacks openly, but used his surrogates to respond. And uh, to his huge credit, bury the hatchet once they joined the court. And on the court, uh, McReynolds, the most virulent racist and anti-Semite ever to grace the corridors of the Supreme Court, uh, refuses to travel to Philadelphia because as he tells Taft, I'm not to be found abroad when a Hebrew is present. He's just is so appalled. Now the story of McReynolds not appearing in court pictures because Brandeis was there is, turns out to be false. But when Brandeis spoke in the conference, McReynolds would just leave the conference room and then come back in when Brandeis was finished. Brandeis just ignores this natur mensch, as he calls him, and leaves him in the dust, you know, uh, <laughs> as, a, as a footnote. But uh, he and Taft really get along. They bury the hatchet. Uh, uh, Brandeis says, all goes well with our current chief. We're very happy with him. They suppress dissents together. And it's just a beautiful sign of what adults they were, first of all. And they're bound by their devotion to the shared legitimacy of the Supreme Court. So they did not allow their personal clashes to interfere. And as a result, they served the country very well. In the center there. Hi, my, oh, 
My name is uh, Christopher Condon. I just had a quick question. Uh, the name of the lecture calls the Taft pre presidency the last constitutional presidency, and I think a lot of Calvin Coolidge scholars might disagree with you on that. <laughs> so I just have I just wanted to know your thoughts on that. Why do you think Coolidge doesn't fit the bill for that? And uh, that's it. I should say the title uh, may be partially my fault because the titles of the book forums are usually the, the titles of the books. And because the American President series, the title is the name of the president. We just thought we needed something a little more uh, for the the event invitation. But so you've oversold it in order to con people into coming to sort of <laughs> to bring libertarians from across DC out. So we get the Coolidge uh, fans yeah. out to argue. There's, there's a good case to be made for Coolidge. Uh, maybe I don't know, Doug. You want to make it better than I? But I, I, Taft, okay. Coolidge was not a judge, so Taft certainly was more self-consciously a constitutionalist and approaching in judicial terms. But I call him a judicial president as well as a constitutional president, and it's certainly true that. Coolidge had maybe the last constrained vision of the office? Well, his, his, his reputation for being taciturn, much like uh, Taft's for his uh, physique, uh, maybe is a little bit misleading. But it's certainly representative, I think, of his view of the office. It was not something that he uh, tried to, uh, to expand or, or glorify, or certainly not himself. So in that respect, I mean, he was a very modest person in that respect, self-disciplined. Uh, Roger. You know, Coolidge was sworn in by his, I think by his father in, in uh, was it Vermont or New Hampshire? I think Vermont, anyway, in a, in a, in a house that had no, uh, no plumbing or electricity. Wow. <laughs> I'm Roger Pilon with the Cato Institute. Uh, among other things, uh, Coolidge was known for taking naps uh, in his pajamas in the White House. And so... Um, Executive he, time. Pardon? Executive time. <laughs> yes. <laughs> also, was it was said that uh, when Tool Coolidge died, um, the response was, how could you tell? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, Jeff, um, my question for you is this. In your research... Did you come up with uh, any um, influence or um, uh, information about Taft's role in the infamous 1927 case of Buck v. Bell? Hmm. I don't know his special role there. Uh, it was an eight to one decision. The only dissenter, Pierce Butler, was a devout Catholic, and he objected on uh, natural law, religious grounds, that eugenics. Uh, was a violation of the basic dignity of the individual. The decision infamously was written by Holmes. Uh, it was obviously not controversial because it was eight to one, but I don't know any special role that Taft played in it. Do you, have, do, you, do you have a sense? Holmes was a bit of an enthusiast, actually. Holmes was such an enthusiast that he goes back and writes to Harold Lasky, this morning I just handed down the decision mandating the sterilization of imbeciles. Nothing I've done all week has given me so much pleasure. <laughs> so far from being a reluctant avatar of judicial restraint, he was an enthusiastic eugenicist who also said, uh, I loathe the thick-fingered clowns we call the people. He's a Nietzsche, <laughs> an aristocrat, and a, a eugenicist. I don't, think, I, I don't believe that Taft uh, was himself uh, a, a partisan of, of Spencer. And, and, and but Wilson was all in, too. 
oh, it was a very progressive movement. And in yeah. fact, all the major religious denominations, Catholic, Protestant, and Jewish, the uh, progressive sects were all in favor of eugenics, and it was only the conservative denominations that opposed it. Uh, over there, please. Thank you. Uh, you had mentioned that uh, President Taft in his earlier political career was an excellent administrator. And I understand that around the, especially the Theodore Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson presidencies, but generally in this time frame, this was when modern public administration was starting to get developed. Can you uh, extrapolate a little bit on how Taft's public administration differed from the uh, progressive models that they had at that time and what maybe some other of the origins of that were? Great question. Uh, it was Wilson who really created the alphabet soup agencies, the Federal Trade Commission, the Federal Communication Commission, all with the aid of Brandeis, who was not, remember, these are not centralizing Hamiltonians. Brandeis is enough of a Jeffersonian that he wants a decentralized Fed with a combination of national and locally elected officers, but they do create the modern administrative state. Taft is more an efficient government guy, so he creates the first federal budget and demands the first accountings from the various departments uh, so that they can balance the budget. And as a result, the budget not only is balanced, but has a surplus during his presidency, uh, uh, unlike the deficit that had prevailed under Roosevelt. So it's more he wants administrative discipline. That's why he insists on the power to fire officers and writes as president his most important decision, the Myers decision, is the strong defense of the president's ability to fire any inferior officer he likes. That decision may become relevant again uh, in the <laughs> next year at the Supreme Court. Um, so, but, but he's not, uh, in the election of 1912, the, ha the Hamilton, you can tell, here's the, way, the best way of, uh, and this is Doug's area, uh, on antitrust, their difference to administration is obvious. The Hamiltonian Roosevelt wants to create a bureau of corporations to supervise big banks. The Jeffersonian uh, Wilson wants to break up the banks so they can be taxed at the state level. And the constitutionalist Taft just wants to bring more antitrust suits through the Justice Department. So he's not in favor of creating lots of new administrative agencies, but administering the existing government in an efficient way. Well, I just happen to have marked a passage in the book, the only one for today. Okay. Um, and this is Taft as president on the antitrust laws. Mere size is no sin against the law. Roosevelt thought it was. Um, but Taft had a very level-headed and I think prescient view about this. Um, so law enforcement was exactly as you said. It was a matter of law enforcement if there was wrongdoing, not a matter of regulation as though there was something inherently problematic about large companies. And explain, to, to, you know, Doug is the world antitrust expert, explain Taft's view that the motive behind a combination would be a test of its illegality. Is that a sensible test? Well, it has some, it has some continuing uh, vitality, but, <clears throat> pardon me, much less than he uh, propounded. Um, so he was even of the view that there were, there were um, benign trusts as well as malign trusts, and that's, uh, that's not tolerable today, uh, tol or tolerated. Uh, but it's certainly true that some conduct uh, that is condemned as anti-competitive, this unilateral conduct, um, is a matter of interpretation as whether it was an attempt 
to suppress competition or was instead rather uh, a, a legitimate, uh, self-interested way of, of operating. So to that extent, there's a shadow, a pretty deep shadow of that intent question there. Can you channel Taft on vertical media mergers? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I don't think he wanted RCA Victor to monopolize gramophone <laughs> <laughs> records. <laughs> uh, this gentleman over here, uh, it's third row. Thank you. I'm Herman Bauma, Executive Director of the National Association for Objectivity and Science. Um, it's been made very clear that uh, Taft was concerned about the presidency becoming too powerful. Did he express, ever express any concern about the Supreme Court being too powerful? I mean, it could be argued that there are no checks or balances on the Supreme Court. If the Supreme Court issues a constitutional interpretation, uh, the only recourse for the other branches or the country is to amend the Constitution. Did Taft ever express any concern about the Supreme Court being too powerful? He, he a great question. He was um, generally inclined to defer to federal laws. So he voted, he was a Hamiltonian who had a strong view of federal power and uh, dissented from the court's decision to strike down the federal maximum hour laws on the grounds of judicial restraint, although he did vote to strike down the child labor law as exceeding Congress's power to regulate interstate commerce. But he voted to strike down lots of state laws for violating liberty of contract and property because he believed that the role of the court was to enforce liberty and property rights against state mobs. So he was very Cato-like and libertarian in his approach to judicial engagement at the state level, but generally deferential at the federal level. And that's a long way of saying he believed the judges should operate within constitutional limits and should not make up rights that weren't in the Constitution. He famously wrote the majority decision upholding warrantless wiretaps over the dissent, the visionary dissent of Justice Brandeis, who would have translated the Constitution in light of new technologies. Uh, so judicial activism per se was not his theme. He just thought that the judges should keep the other branches within their constitutionally assigned roles and also perform their own. Uh, Doug, what would you say about Taft? Well, the, you know, there was, I don't think the, the Supreme Court or the judiciary as a whole was in any danger of being seen as, as imperial uh, at that time. Uh, it's really, you know, we look at it today as a very different institution that says, um, asserted itself in ways that would have been unthinkable uh, at that time, resolving social issues that are un untethered to the Constitution in any meaningful way. Uh, that just wasn't, wasn't an issue, wasn't the kind of thing uh, that anyone would worry about. Um, this is Learned Hand in a letter to Taft that Jeff quotes about uh, uh, reflecting on Taft's um, uh, efforts for on behalf of the judiciary. Uh, it, it is great comfort to know the interest that you take. To be frank, we have never felt it before your incumbency. This was a very modest institution in scale and prominence, uh, and uh, no more, no more in danger of overreaching than, uh, well, none at all, really. You know, uh, this gentleman here. Suspenders. Jeff, I'm a member of the um, Supreme Court Historical Society, and I think a couple of years ago you gave a lecture 
on your other book, The Supreme Court, The Personalities and Rivalries. Um, you use the word constitutionalist to describe uh, Mr. Justice Taft. Does that mean he was an originalist or somebody who believed in a living constitution? When you describe him as a constitutionalist, would Justice Scalia have considered himself a constitutionalist, et cetera? That's the question I have for you. That's, that's a great question. And thank you for bringing that riveting book with another really, <laughs> really surprising title, The Supreme Court. I, I'm, <laughs> absolutely. Um, Taft was not an originalist. He was not an originalist. He said that uh, the law had to adapt to changing circumstances. He was a Hamiltonian. He believed that there were two, gr gr well, he believed that Washington was the greatest uh, American and Marshall the greatest uh, judge. And he said he'd rather have been Marshall than anyone else. And uh, he, he, like Marshall, channeled Hamilton. So by calling him a constitutionalist, I meant that he said that the judiciary should keep the other branches within their constitutionally appointed bounds and should stick to the text and enforce the structures laid out by the framers. Um, but that didn't mean that he thought that they should try to channel the framers' original understanding. You know, Doug, you'll know more about the history of this, but I think originalism as a constitutional methodology, although there were hints of it in the 19th century, really didn't get up and running self-consciously until Justice uh, Scalia and the 1980s. So Ta Taft more uh, believes in flexible application of the law within constitutional boundaries. And that's why he has quite an expansive conception of presidential power, expansive but limited, and of congressional power, expansive but limited. Um, but not specifically originalist. Can you, can maybe you can refine. Well, uh, this is perilous with Roger in the room. Okay. <laughs> so we'll find out where I'm off track here. But the, the phrase, um, uh, a jurisprudence of original intent, comes from then Attorney General Mises' speech to the ABA in 1985, which elicited, rather surprisingly, elicited a response from Justice Brennan in an article published in the Georgetown Law Review. That phrase was quickly itself morphed into, well, maybe not so quickly, but soon enough, into the original public meaning uh, in order to get away from the idea that it was the subjective intent that mattered as opposed to what the words conveyed to those who wrote and ratified them. Um, and it, it, Roger will tell us whether there was a precursor of this, but it certainly emerges in the 1980s, maybe reemerges, we'll find out, in response to the, the court's uh, uh, proclivity for drifting away from any concern uh, with the text and meaning of the Constitution. There's actually an opinion by Justice Marshall, I'm sorry to say, that says we begin with the legislative history. And if it's inconclusive, look to the text of the statute. Uh, so that's just sort of how out of whack things had gotten. Roger, please uh, rescue me here. <laughs> the question, Doug, is whether the originalist of Mies and the Brennan reaction was a reaction to what could be conceived of as just the opposite, the living constitution. Yes, of course, yeah. it was these... Brennan and I mean the Warren and Berger courts of the mid 50s on that gave rise to um, because as Scalia said a living constitution is a dead constitution right 
because it stands yeah. for yeah. nothing. But it was there under other terminology, perhaps, any sort of similar articulated devotion to original meaning at an earlier period? Interpretivism and non-interpretivism was soon abandoned, but that was a 70s. Yeah. But you're talking about in the early days. In the late 19th century, early 20th. Um, I'm unaware. I mean, they just simply... Yeah. I'm reminded of Cleveland and when he vetoed a bill for the relief of farmers suffering from a drought in 1887, saying, I could find no authorization for this expenditure in the Constitution. That's taking enumerated power seriously, and one could say this is originalism of a sort. And of course, that was Madison's position in the Congress on the bill to re for the relief of the citizens of Baltimore. Uh, no, they were earlier. citizens fleeing from San Domingo to Baltimore ah, and, okay. uh, and Philadelphia. And he said, I cannot undertake to lay my finger on that passage of the Constitution that authorizes us to expend the money of the taxpayers on this humanitarian activity. But what's striking about this really significant exchange between Doug and Roger is that Madison and Taft in the 19th century folks uh, appealed to the text, to structural limitations in the Constitution, not to the uh, intentions of the framers or its original public meaning. So it was a, a 20th century uh, development. Which strikes me, therefore, is a little odd to call Taft a Hamiltonian because Hamilton was rather more... Um, inclined to, uh, say, read the general welfare clause as providing an independent power for Congress to tax and spend for the general welfare in his report on manufacturers. Hamiltonian only in the sense that he did construe Congress and the president's powers ex more expansively than Jefferson, uh, but not in an unlimited way. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. I, I would submit that Marshall's pay on to the written constitution in Marbury is functionally the same as talking about the original public meaning. He says these, these limitations and, 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 uh, and rights are written so that they may not be forgotten. All right? And he talks a little bit about what happens when things are not written. Uh, so the whole point of that is to preserve the original understanding. And yet Marshall did, in Gibbons v. Ogden, uh, repair to the function of the Commerce Clause as serving to restrain um, commerce, uh, the, the, the legislature, uh, well, in this case, the state of New York. Of course, the original public meaning doesn't preclude necessary inferences from what's written, like judicial review. Mm -hmm. It's not provided in the Constitution, but Marshall said the Constitution wouldn't make sense if it weren't intended. It's implicit in yeah, a written Constitution. In having a with the judiciary. Yeah. But for but I have to say it again, but for Taft and Madison, the textual limitation should be construed without reference to the original public meaning. Taft explicitly says we should not be bound by the understanding of the framers. And Madison, too, talks about the Constitution adopting to changing circumstances. So it's a different, call it textual. That's why I called him a constitutionalist. And, I, and maybe that's a kind of framework that originalist conservatives and textualist libertarians can converge around. But it's, it's significant, isn't it? And I think this is worth further study. I didn't know he'd made that statement. Where is that? I'll find it. In an opinion? It, uh, in a speech. Huh? Yeah, I was surprised by it.
Yes, sir. Uh, Paul Kamen, our, uh, thanks, Gene. Jeff, uh, in your book, you, you note that during the uh, 1908 campaign, uh, Taft heartily endorsed the Republican platform on equal and civil rights, the enforcement of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment, in contrast to the, uh, the segregation as Democrats, clearly. And in his inaugural speech, he echoed those themes, but at the same time, he said, you got to be careful about appointing blacks to offices where the whites may not... Uh, like them or have some friction in the South, and indeed he carried that out, which was called his Southern policy or Southern strategy uh, today. Could you comment on that uh, dichotomy between his personal belief on, on equal rights and how he carried it out? Yes, thank you for asking about that important tension. So he imbibes from his father a devotion to the Reconstruction Amendments. And I went to the Taft House in Cincinnati and saw in his library a copy of the Dred Scott decision from 1857 with a handwritten notation from his father calling attention to Benjamin Curtis's dissent. So he imbibes from Alfonso uh, devotion to equal rights for African Americans. And Alfonso gave his entire library to an African American lawyer who said uh, to Judge Taft the only uh, American of his generation who was really devoted to equal civil rights for African Americans. So to, uh, Taft is not, like Wilson, committed to racialist policies of segregation. On the other hand, he has a really unfortunate and politically uh, doomed and ineffective notion that Southern Democrats could be brought into the Republican Party if they're not provoked by the appointment of African-American office holders in the South. So as a result, he uh, tries to implement this policy, and it doesn't bring in any Southern Democrats, and it's a failure in every respect. So his record is, is mixed. He, he paid appropriate uh, uh, tribute in all of his speeches to enforcement of the amendments. He also insisted on enforcing the rule of law against uh, striking Southern laborers who are, are refusing employment to African-Americans. Some said it was more because of his horror of labor unions than a devotion to civil rights, but he, he, he was not uh, devoted to federal racism, but he was really bad on these appointments because of his terrible political sense, which didn't succeed. Front row. Oh, there you are. Thank you. I'm uh, Dan Barinsky, and this comment is slightly off in the years. I'm commenting about Justice, Chief Justice Douglas, oh, Douglas but it's... Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Dan Barinsky, this uh, question is slightly off in the, in the years because it's about uh, Chief Justice Douglas White, and it's provoked by uh, Judge Ginsburg's kinds of comments about the modesty of the vision of the Supreme Court. Uh, I had read about the... Um, history of the Migratory Birds Act, Congress was very upset about the extinction of birds. So they passed a law saying it's unlawful to uh, kill migratory birds. And that was a criminal san sanction. Uh, Mr. Schauber, a gentleman, was charged with violating that law, a criminal act. It went to the United States Supreme Court. And Justice White was could not find any basis in the Constitution under the Commerce Clause for the congressionally passed Migratory Birds Act. So and now that Mr. Schauber is pending with a criminal charge against him, he passed over that uh, case for several years. 
he contacted the senator, I think it was Senator Platt, and they called the King of England, and they convinced Canada and the United States to enter into the Migratory Bird Treaty. And that was, uh, so the absence of commerce jurisdiction meant that Mr. Shawver should have been freed. Well, they kept him tied up for several years under a criminal charge, and it seems to me that the spark plug for getting the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, which I think was a wonderful thing, was really <coughs> Chief Justice White's concern. And I thought that's judicial activism, or that's not consistent with the modest vision of the Supreme Court that was uh, commented on a few minutes ago. So is this, how's this related to Taft? This is related to, well, I was trying to tie it to, to Judge Ginsburg's comment about in Taft's time, the Supreme Court had very modest ambitions. And it seems to me that for a member of the Supreme Court to basically be the spark plug for a treaty, an international treaty, is contradicts your comments about the modest visions of the Supreme Court. So my question, I'm going to be answer the question is, is that consistent with your understanding of, uh, of a modest so I, Supreme So Court? did the court do anything more than declare the migratory, the first Migratory Birds Act as beyond the authority of the Congress? He, uh, Chief Justice Douglas kept the Shawver case until the treaty was passed. Oh, I see. Government okay. withdrew yeah. charges against Mr. Shawver. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's not exactly on the same level, it seems to me, as uh, deciding whether uh, the uh, Equal Protection Clause um, requires states to uh, recognize uh, same-sex marriages um, or, or any of the other myriad things that have been so controversial in recent decades. We may have time for one more. Uh, Ma'am, the, towards the back there. Hi, my name is uh, Margaret. Um, so this question um, kind of goes between the role of the executive and the ju uh, the judicial role as a chief justice. And I'm curious if um, Taft, as somebody who had a major role in administration and was the head of you know the federal government, um, had um, strong opinions or interesting opinions about incorporation in terms of the Bill of Rights, because you know we see you know Congress shall make no law having implications on you know terms of federalism and how you know states' rights versus the federal um, infrastructure plays. Gosh, what a great question. And I guess the first incorporation decision would have been Gitlow in the 20s. And I don't know which side Taft was on. We can, if someone wants to Google it fast. But um, it was a free speech decision. And because he was not an originalist, he didn't engage whether the Privileges or Immunities Clause should have incorporated. Harlan, of course, was the great uh, uh, originalist defender of incorporation who, uh, and Taft was very close to Harlan uh, before he joined the court. But I will, let's both read Gitlow and find out. I think that was the major incorporation case that was decided when he was there. But as you know, incorporation didn't really get up and running until the 60s, uh, until after he was gone. Um, and most of his cases striking down state laws uh, as violating property and contract rights were under the due process clause, which ended up doing the work of privileges or immunity. So he was definitely in favor of strong enforcement of constitutional rights at the state level, but possibly not through the lens of incorporation. 
Great question, though. I must read Gitlaw. What, what is it? What, where, where, where was he? He was in the majority. Excellent. Okay, good. Tap in favor of incorporation. Once again, the constitutional the chief justice uh, comes through. Great. Well, thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Judge Ginsburg. Thank you all for uh, participating. Great questions. Um, we are headed upstairs for lunch and for book signings. Uh, Jeff will be signing books. Uh, wait, upstairs. We're already here. Sorry, I'm thinking of... Uh, oh, yeah, we are heading upstairs. Uh, second level. That's where the lunch is. Book signing right out here. Highly recommend the book. Uh, pick yourself up a copy. And uh, thanks. There it is. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.